Well, good morning, Peace Church. <clears throat> For those of you that don't know me, my name is Eric Lee. I'm one of the uh, elders here at Peace. And I know we had been looking forward to hearing uh, Pastor Kurt's son Eric preach this Sunday, but some things came up fairly last minute for him, and they were unable to make the trip. So uh, I'll be pinch hitting today. Uh, You're stuck with me for the next little while. Um, For those of you visiting, welcome. We're glad you chose to join us in worship today. We hope you find us uh, accommodating. Reach out, chat with folks afterward, get to know us. We look forward to get to knowing you as well. I had a a professor in college, a professor of rhetoric, as I was taking my speech class, that told us when you're beginning a speech, or maybe in this case a sermon, there are a few things that you should avoid doing. One of the things you should avoid doing likely is starting off with a joke. If you tell jokes like I do that are usually kind of eye rollers, that's probably pretty good advice, so I'll spare you that. The second thing he said is try to avoid apologizing for anything. And though I think it's good advice, Dr. O'Rourke was a great professor, I am going to take a moment and apologize for my lack of slides. Uh, this came up pretty quickly, and I did not get my act together quick enough to put my verses on slides and make it technologically savvy enough to give to Garrett in any kind of coherent form. So I apologize ahead of time. I will be quoting a lot of scripture. If you have any questions or want those references afterward, reach out to me. I'm happy to share whatever sources I have. So the passage we're going to look at this morning is James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, when I, when I get to reading it, it's on page 1012. So again, that's James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, found on a page 1012 on the pew Bibles. Now in this passage, James warns us about the power of the tongue and the dangers of our speech and what it can do to our walk and what it can do to our lives and what it can do to those around us. And although some of you who know me well know that my favorite book is Ephesians, and I have wanted to think about preaching again on some passage in Ephesians, James is becoming a close second. James is a very practical writer. He fills his writing with images that his listeners back in the ancient times, as well as us today, could, can certainly relate to. So I like it. The other thing I, I think about, you know, when you start a Bible study is, we know that this book is God's Word, correct? We know that it's infallible, that in its original languages it contains no errors, right? But it was written by men, it was, they were inspired, absolutely, but written by men who had their own experiences, their own wisdom or lack of wisdom, their own emotions, their own personalities. And it just gets me thinking, think of James. He was the brother of Jesus. By no means do I want to make this facetious, but imagine what it would have been like to be the brother of Jesus. Your brother's literally perfect. That means the first time you disobey Joseph and Mary, you're already not living up to the bar that Jesus set. That's tough. And we know from Scripture that James was a skeptic through most of his brother Jesus' ministry. And then you can remember that Jesus was crucified around 32, 33 AD. And if we believe the scholars who know what they're talking about, James was likely written around the mid-40s. James didn't become a Christian until after he met his resurrected Lord, his brother. So in a matter of about 10 years, this skeptic, who had watched his brother walk the earth. He had watched his brother claim to be the Messiah. He had watched his brother get mocked. He watched his brother get killed in the most horrific fashion that they could come up with in those times, death on a cross. He watched all of that. And then he became a believer when he acknowledged his brother as Lord. And in 10 years, he wrote a letter to Christians that has become part of the biblical canon 
He was a leader in the Jerusalem church in 10 years. It's a pretty rapid rise. What an experience he had. James was writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, which means Jewish Christians that were scattered from Israel. And they didn't have the privilege of meeting in a beautiful church building like we have here. They were most likely meeting in house churches, smaller groups. Another interesting fact about most of these Jewish Christians were a majority of them were illiterate. They couldn't read what James had written to them. So they relied upon the spoken word. They relied upon someone teaching their fledgling faith, giving them the foundations for this faith that they had chosen to follow by, the, by verbal teaching. So as I mentioned earlier too, James is a very practical writer. Perhaps this is most shown in uh, probably his most famous chapter, this letter, chapter 2, where he makes the statement, faith without works is dead. Now we know that we aren't saved by our works, correct? We, we are not a church. We are not believers that believe in works righteousness. We know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So what James is saying is, though, he wants you to walk the talk. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, do your actions prove it? Do you walk the talk? And so with this background, we come to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And again, if you want to follow along, it's on page 1012 in the Pew Bibles. And this is God's word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And this ends the reading of God's word. Please join me in a prayer. Heavenly Father, as we study your word this morning, I ask that whatever I say be only what you would have me say. Teach us from the scripture, Lord, what you want us to learn. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So starting with the passage, if we look at verse 1, James starts off by saying, not many of you should desire to become teachers. Sorry. Is that me? (laughs) I'll try to keep my head more still. <laughs> so, all right, not many of you should become teachers. And as I mentioned a moment ago, remember a large majority of, of people that James is writing to are illiterate. These teachers who spoke 
the word, who taught without having the benefit of their, their uh, listeners being able to read the letters they were teaching from, uh, were very important. Being a faith teacher back in those times held a certain amount of prestige. It meant you were likely intelligent because anybody that could read was deemed to be pretty intelligent. You could almost say these teachers were in a position of power. And so James is saying, be careful. You have the power of words that can cause all kinds of problems. You have the power of words that can lead to eternal life. Consider Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So he's saying to these teachers, you better walk the talk. So, and if that's not enough kind of pressure, consider what Jesus said to his disciples. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Teachers of God's word will be held to a stricter standard. They will be judged on what they say, how they handle God's word. I'll be honest, that makes me tremble when I'm preaching or when I'm teaching a Sunday school class. God is going to be saying, how did you handle my word? So there are some then who think that James is starting off saying teachers, and then the rest of this passage that we just read is, all, is just to teachers. Whew. Most of us that aren't teachers are off the hook. We don't have to worry about it. We'll let, we'll let the pastors full-time take the brunt of, of uh, God's scrutiny on that. But that doesn't really fit with the rest of the passage. And I think when we go to verse 2, we can see, or we see that James says, we all stumble in some, many ways. And when I looked at commentaries on James, pretty much unanimously they said, we all stumble means all of us as Christians. All right? So he's not just letting the rest of us off the hook that don't teach on a regular uh, basis on a Sunday morning. So I think we can agree that although it's important that we uh, hold our teachers accountable, it doesn't let us off the hook for what James is about to teach us through the rest of this passage. As he says, we all stumble in many ways. Does anybody want to disagree with me on that? Anyone here want to say they haven't sinned in the last week, the last day, the last 24 hours, right? We all know that we're sinners and we have sinful hearts. In fact, James says it's impossible for us to control our tongues. If we could, if we could perfectly control our speech, we would be perfect. We could control our minds, our bodies, our thoughts. And obviously we know that's not the case. So words have a huge impact on our spiritual lives, both the ones that we hear from teachers and both the ones we use ourselves as well. So perhaps understanding that most of the readers would be listening to this and not being able to read it, James uses a couple images to kind of start driving home his point of the power of the tongue and what our words can do. In verse 3, he uses the example of a bit in a horse's mouth. Now I can stand here and you can look at me and you know that I'm not a cowboy. Um, I don't know a lot about horses, but I do know horses are powerful. If any of you have watched the Kentucky Derby, you see those horses and the muscles and how fast they're going. You're like, that animal is powerful. We talk about car engines in terms of horsepower. So we get this idea that the horse is this powerful animal. And yet there's this thing called a bit, part of which goes into the horse's mouth, from what I understand, goes up against the gums and the cheek, and a little bit of pressure from an experienced rider can direct that powerful animal in just the way that the rider wants it to go. 
James's readers would have been really well familiar with that. Horses were pretty common back then. But in case they weren't, maybe they lived in a port city, they weren't around a lot of horses, he uses an He says that just a small rudder can control a large ship. And again, his readers would have been very familiar with that. But isn't it great? Here's James writing in something like 45 AD. Here we are in 2021, and we can use the same visual. So consider the USS Theodore Roosevelt. It's an aircraft carrier. This is where I wish I had a picture of it. That aircraft carrier is about as long as the Empire State Building is tall. Imagine standing at the bottom of the Empire State Building looking up. That's the size of this ship. It's made of 47,000 tons of steel and another 1 million pounds of aluminum. And that doesn't even include the weight of the airplanes and the helicopters and the other accessories on this huge ship. And it's controlled by just two rudders, relatively small in relation to the rest of that ship. The rudders are about 30 by 22 feet. Now, they both weigh 50 tons, so that's, that's pretty heavy, right? But 100 tons controls the direction of an over 52,000-ton ship. And all that's directed by a captain or an admiral with a steering assembly that pales in comparison in size to the rest of the things I just mentioned. So we start getting this visual, this tongue, this small little member of our bodies can control our bodies, can control all kinds of things with outcomes large and small throughout our lives. And as Douglas Moo, a commentary on James has pointed out, this ship analogy corresponds really well to humans. We have human desire and will, much like the pilot of the ship or a captain of the ship wants to take that ship in a certain direction. We have a rudder, our tongue. Our tongue can push us in one direction or the other. And James is going to spend a lot of this passage telling you what happens when we go in the wrong direction. And the means of the, the means of the, what the rudder is directing is the ship, our bodies, our lives. So it's an analogy that we can start to kind of flesh out and make sense. And this leads us into verse 5 and 6. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James is obviously using the tongue to indicate our speech or our words. And I would argue in the age of technology, it includes tweets and Facebook posts and Instagram posts. And you can tell I'm not savvy in social media. But the only thing where we can write a quick, snappy response, it's just like our speech. And James is saying that is controlled by such a small member but can lead to such large problems. And when we don't control our tongues, oh boy, the trouble we get into. He says, just a little speech, a few words, a little boast, a little bit of a prideful few words can start a forest fire. So my family and I were recently in northern Wisconsin. It's a place I've gone to since I was, well, basically since I was born. It's, as my wife calls it, it's my happy place. We drive seven or eight hours north. We get out of the car. It's in the middle of a lodgepole pine forest, a glacier lake that's clear, and the air is most definitely fresher up there. I get out of the car, and stress just starts kind of leaving my body. So just a couple weeks ago, we were up there. We got out. We unpacked, and we kind of jogged down to the lake, and we looked across the lake, and it wasn't such fresh air. There was this haze across the whole lake. My wife said, well, you can almost taste the smoke. I said, that must be a pretty big campfire. I had never really seen it before. So we got on our fancy iPhones and looked, and sure enough, the, the Wisconsin Department of Health had issued an air quality warning because of the smoke that was covering the northern part of Wisconsin. That smoke came from forest fires in central and northwest Canada, a long ways away from where we were trying to enjoy the Northwoods. So some small spark 
had started a small fire in a forest in Canada, which grew to be a big fire, which produced all kinds of smoke, which affected us many, many miles away. And James says, not only can our words start a fire with far-reaching consequences, he says the tongue itself is a fire. He switches to a direct metaphor. It's a world of unrighteousness, he says. And from a commentator, they point out that in the ancient world, the rapid and damaging spread of fire was frequently used to convey a warning about the effect of unrestrained passions. So in this case, unrestrained speech, angry speech, that initial flesh response where we just blurt out something that ends up being extremely harmful, is like a scorching fire that destroys things. Consider Proverbs 16, 27. It says, A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Yet again, his listeners would have been identifying with that. They would have said this really small thing, the bit in a horse's mouth, the rudder in a ship, can cause all kinds of problems, problems far out of proportion to the size of that little ball of muscle in your mouth. So our speech, our words, display our sinful beings. And that's not my quote. Consider Matthew 15, 18 and 19. Jesus says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false false witness, slander. Brothers and sisters, that's an ugly group of sins. And I can remember early on in my walk, I'm going, okay, yeah, I'm I'm okay with that one and, and that one, haven't murdered anyone, lies and slander, oh, bummer. Our speech reflects the evilness of our hearts. But then James steps it up even further as if he hasn't pounded his point home enough. He says, not only does the tongue set our lives on fire, it is a fire and gets us all into all kinds of trouble. The tongue itself is set on fire by hell. That means that when we utter evil speech, it's from Satan. So here I am, a Christian. I profess Jesus as my Savior. And when I lie, when I slander, or I pass along that little juicy morsel of gossip, I'm delighting Satan. That should crush us. Satan is our Lord's most powerful primary adversary, and we're delighting him when we don't restrain our speech. Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. There was this first grade boy many years ago who was in, in his classroom, and they had something called show and tell. Anybody have that growing up, show and tell? I think it's actually a pretty brilliant thing for a first grade teacher to do. It gets kids to stand up and, and do some public speaking. So in show and tell, kids got a chance to stand up and, and show what they you know, had gotten maybe for their birthday or what their grandparents had given them when they visited them or something like that. Or they were able to tell a story about something they had done in the summer or on their recent vacation. So this particular day, the boy was getting ready to go out, stand up for show and tell. And his, his best friend stood up right before him and said, well, my family has a sailboat. And we sailed the Great Lakes over the summer of the summer. We stopped at restaurants on the Great Lakes and we ate good food. And we slept on the boat. And it was just a great adventure. We saw all kinds of cool stuff. And then he sat down. And his classmates were pretty impressed. You could see them kind of going, wow. So here's this little boy. He's like, I've got nothing like that. I didn't bring any baseball cards or matchbox cars to show. Um, I don't think my life is that exciting. So he stood up. 
He said, well, I know what I can say. He told the class, my, my grandfather passed away. My mom's dad, he died. And he got the requisite sympathy from his classmates, and he felt like he had kind of trumped his friend's show and tell for the day. Later that day, his first grade teacher said, you know, I want to send a sympathy card to your parents. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. Just give it to me. I'll take it to them. You guys can start to see what's probably happening, right? So the matter seemed to be dropped until a few days later, this young man got off the bus. He started walking up the driveway. At the top of his driveway is his mom with a white envelope. She pulls a card out of the envelope. It's a sympathy card on the death of her father. But the boy had lied. His grandfather was not dead. He was definitely very much alive. I know this story because that little boy was me. I told that lie. Now, looking back, a lot of people chuckle and think it's cute. But let me tell you what it felt like. I had to tell my mom that I was a liar. And then my dad came home, and I got to tell him that I had lied. And then I got to tell my first grade teacher, Miss Bennett, I still remember her name, that I was a liar. And then I stood up in front of my peers in first grade and said, I lied. And worst of all, I had to tell my grandfather. I idolized my grandfather. And I remember sitting on his lap. He was smoking his pipe in my parents' living room. I don't know why we let him smoke in the house, but we did because it smelled good, I guess. And I remember him smiling and being very, very graceful, but telling me what he thought of liars. Now, you guys can tell that, that, that made an imprint on my life. That hurt a lot of people. In first grade, two big things happened. My younger sister was born. That was a really good thing. And I told that lie. And here I am, 40-some years later, telling you that. One small little jealous morsel that I wanted to beat my friend's show-and-tell story, and it keeps persisting. So we see this little tongue with the power to control the whole body of our, or our life, having power out of proportion to its size. And now that James has established that there is a huge amount of potential wickedness in our speech, he reminds us how difficult it is to control it. It's kind of like the hits keep on coming here, right? So in verses 7 and 8, James alludes to creation and says how pre-fall and even after fall, man can subdue all kinds of creatures. We have lion tamers and tiger tamers, and, and we are the highest form of intellectual animal, and yet we can't subdue our tongues. We can subdue lions and tigers, but not our own speech. He says our tongue is a restless evil. It's full of poison. And restless to me just means kind of never satisfied, always looking for more, right? So it's not like he's saying, you can fight this battle, you've conquered it, good job, you can now totally control your speech. No, it's restless. It's a constant battle. Even for who we would consider the most mature Christians who seem so wise, it's a constant battle to control what comes out of our mouths. In fact, he says it's such a struggle that no human being outside of Jesus can completely control the tongue. So as I was preparing this at this point, I was going through the passage and trying to get the, I was thinking, wow, these guys are going to live. What a downer of a sermon. I mean, we're evil. We have evil hearts. We express it with our speech. We can't control it. And then I came to verses 9 and 10. And James says, with this same tongue or mouth, we both bless and curse. In the ancient times, blessing God was considered pretty much the highest form of speech. Think of what we do here on a Sunday, Sunday morning worship. We sing. Some of us better than others, but we sing. We glorify God by singing to him. We listen to his word 
We teach from his word. We pray to him. We offer him gifts. All of these things with our speech. That's a high form of speech. And yet, how often do we leave here and in a very short while do we curse someone or something? And again, in ancient times, cursing was even more vile than what we think of it today. As Douglas Moo has pointed out, cursing someone in those times was consigning them to hell. Very lofty praise speech consigning someone to hell, coming from the same mouth. The tongue is a double-edged, hypocritical sword. And James says, this ought not to be so. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, in typical James fashion, he provides three illustrations to emphasize his point. And I'll just summarize these things by saying again, his listeners would have really understood this. Fig trees and olives and salt ponds and fresh water. He's saying bad things don't produce good things. So we have this passage from James, vividly teaching us that our tongues or our speech or our text messages or our Facebook posts or our quick emails in response, they can get us into all kinds of trouble. They can start fires. And he says on our own, we can't consistently control this. No human being can control it. So what are we to do? Give up? Just not struggle against the sin? Call it a day? Well, I think we know the answer to that is no. So what else can we learn from this? Well, there are, there are five take-home points I'd hopefully like to briefly consider here. Number one, remember that James starts off by admonishing teachers. So remember that James said teachers will be held to a stricter accord. They're going to be judged based on how they handle God's word. So this is going to sound a little defensive, maybe a little self-aggrandizing as I stand up here, but how do you judge your teachers? Do you critique them harshly? Do you wait for them to make a mistake? Do you forget that they too are fallen sinners and need a savior as well? Do you talk poorly about your pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study teacher to other people? Shouldn't knowing that God has given them some light and they will be held accountable for that allow us to provide a little more grace? I'd encourage us to definitely consider the answer to that being yes. But it doesn't let everybody else off the hook either. There are kids out here, and Lord willing, someday you'll leave your parents' house, and you may have a choice to join a church. Choose carefully who you choose to listen to. Choose your teachers carefully. That Christian podcast you're listening to, is it consistent with truth? Does it ring true? Are you using these things for emotional affirmation while you can ignore sin and conviction and the power of God's truth? Choose carefully who you listen to. Acts 17.11, Luke writes, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. He was talking about the Berean Jews. So they would hear the word, and then they would go search the scriptures and say, does that guy know what he's talking about? Is it consistent with what I see in scripture? And they were considered more noble. So be careful who you're listening to. Choose wisely. Most of us have the blessing of not being illiterate. We can check Scripture, which means we should check Scripture knowing it. Second point, know when to stay silent. Jesus taught us all through the spoken word, right? He obviously had complete control of his tongue. In fact, think of those passages where the Pharisees, who were the intellectual elite of the day, super well-versed in Scripture, memorized it. 
And how many times they tried to trap Jesus, and how each time he smoked them. He was never verbally taken under by any challenger. He did it gracefully, boldly, uh, but he was able to answer all of it. And yet there were times when our Lord and Savior remained silent. Consider the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 3 through 5. It says, And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So setting in context, here's Jesus defending himself against the Pharisees who want to crucify him. They want him killed. Now, don't we think that Jesus could have given a really good response? Don't you think he could have said something that would have amazed Pilate so much the Pilate said, this, no, off the hook, totally. No way we're crucifying him. And Jesus remained silent. Why? Well, Isaiah 53, 7, referencing Jesus, this prophecy says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus stayed silent to fulfill that prophecy. He did it to follow his Father's will. He did it to honor and glorify his Father. And as a saved follower of Jesus Christ, I'm so glad he did. He didn't necessarily want that cup, but he did it. So by staying silent, he honored his Father. So we can't always rein in our tongue, and we know that. But if Jesus knew that there was a time to be silent. Do you think maybe there are some times that perhaps we should stay silent? You know what? Check that. There are definitely times we need to remain silent. Do we need to respond in anger right off the bat when someone says something unkind to us? Do we need to post that tweet right away without thinking through it first? Do we need to harshly rebuke our kids and crush their spirits? Do we need to treat our spouses harshly with our words? How does what we say affect our walk? How does it affect our credibility? Maybe we should just try to stay silent at times. But there's another good reason Scripture tells us why we should stay silent at times. This is one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. I thought about just stopping right there (laughs) so I don't keep talking. Even a fool who keeps silence is considered wise. You may have heard the saying, uh, better to be thought a fool than open up your mouth and remove all doubt. Some people have attributed that to Abraham Lincoln. But there's wisdom in keeping your mouth shut at times and not going with that first flesh response. There's wisdom in saying, Lord, I'm going to need some help. Maybe take a moment to pray before you post that tweet that could hurt your walk, could ruin your credibility with those that read it. There are so many people, myself included, who oftentimes speak before thinking. Try hard not to do that at times. And have you ever noticed when we do respond in anger, we give that flesh response? Have you ever noticed that later on when you calm down, you say, man, did I sound dumb. I started spouting off on things that don't even make sense. I was just spewing forth angry, sinful words. Better to be thought a fool and stay silent than open up your mouth and remove all doubt. So if you're in doubt about a flesh angry response, stay silent. 
to steal Sang from Smokey the Bear, you too can present forest fires. You can tell a bad joke later on in the sermon, just not at the beginning. So. All right, so point number three. I'm sure most of us have heard the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. All right, people are nodding. Well, with all due respect to whoever uttered that statement, I think it's absolutely incorrect. Words can and do hurt. Words can and do break up families. They harm churches. They've caused division in churches. In today's world, employers can look up past Facebook posts or tweets and use that against you. They cannot hire you. People have lost their jobs because of their speech. We know that words can lead to deep pain and regret. I probably don't need to keep offering examples. You've experienced this. You've seen it. James goes so far as to say in chapter 1, verse 26, that if we think we are religious and yet do not bridle our tongues, our religion is worthless. Do you hear that walk the talk thing again that he keeps hammering home? If we don't watch our speech, if we don't consistently struggle against our sinful speech, our religion is worthless. When we do that, we're not demonstrating our desire to serve God. Our words should show evidence of our faith. Our struggle against our quick, flesh-angry responses when we sin should show our faith. But luckily, on the flip side, I've got to give you some good news, right? On the flip side, Scripture, scripture teaches us that uplifting words are healing and they're soothing. Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Sweetness, health to someone's body. 20, Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Gold and silver. A word fitly spoken. A kind response. A soft response to when you feel you've been wronged. Uplifts. It builds. It unifies. What a difference. So then point number four. So how do we attempt to control our tongues? If Proverbs 18.21 is correct, and it says the power of life and death is in the tongue. But I've just sat here for the last 20, 30 minutes telling you, ugh, we're sinful, wicked people, and we spew forth all kinds of things from our mouth, and no human being can control it. But what can we do? Obviously, James and any other Christian I know isn't going to say, give up. So I'd like to offer a few points of things we can do. And these are not earth-shatteringly profound statements. In fact, they should form the basis of any part of our walk when we're struggling against a sin. Number one, pray. Turn to the one who has controlled his tongue perfectly, Jesus. Pray for patience and discernment. Maybe try to get in the habit of when you feel that frustration and anger or whatever sin is kind of bubbling down in your heart and getting ready to kind of be put up in your mouth. Pray. Prayer doesn't have to be Close your eyes, bow your head, cry out to God. Use your words. Say, I don't want to sin. I want to honor you. Help me, please. You'll honor that. And when your speech has caused you to sin, repent. Repent to God. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge those you've harmed with your speech. Repent to them if you need to. Secondly, spend time in God's word. Kind of a well-duh one, right? Spend time in God's Word. Have you ever noticed that 
when you're, you know, we, we go through spiritual highs and lows, right? We, we are humans, we have emotions, and there are times where we're just on fire. We're in God's word daily, we're doing a devotional, we're faithfully attending church, maybe we're in a Bible study, we're helping out at VBS, and you're just, just solid. And you, you find in those times that it's a little bit easier to struggle against the sin that keeps wanting to come back. Conversely, how about those times when you're not walking daily in the word? How about those times when you've been away from church for a little while? Have you noticed that it's kind of harder to struggle against that ongoing repeated sin? If you're wondering how to go about devotions, let me make a suggestion. Go through the book of Proverbs. It reads quickly. It's got wonderful wisdom on speech and all kinds of other things. In fact, if you really want to step it up a notch, memorize a couple Proverbs, especially ones that tell you to keep your mouth shut when you think you're about to say something that's not going to be God-honoring. Douglas Moo has said, a person who is not right with God and walking daily in his presence cannot consistently speak pure and helpful words. Let me repeat that. A person who is not right with God and walking daily in his presence cannot consistently speak pure and helpful words. Are we going to reach perfection? No. Will God honor our attempts to do a better job? Yes. Next point, choose your company wisely. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us that bad company ruins or corrupts good morals. So choose who you're spending time with wisely. Do you find yourself speaking differently with church friends than non-church friends? Do you find a group of friends that seem to gossip more or say more unflattering things and you kind of find it easier to hop on board that gossip train when you're with them? Choose carefully who you're spending time with. Take steps to change if you need to. This one could get me in trouble. If you're on social media or you have access to email on your phone right away and you feel that need to go ahead and respond right away, maybe you need to stop it. And if that's an ongoing thing, repent and get rid of it. Strive to honor the king. We honor and please God when we strive to obey him and when we repent when we don't. Ask him and refocus on serving him by bridling your tongue and see what he will do in your life. Care much more about what God thinks about your speech and your writing than what man thinks. And finally, for my last point, I'll turn to 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be ready with your speech to explain the hope you have. Be ready to share in your own words the gospel. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, I don't come to you with wise and intelligent words. I don't come to you with this big theological basis. I come to you in human weakness so that when I preach Christ crucified, the power of God is shown in me, not my own power. We all know charismatic preachers, and there's nothing wrong with someone that can really bring the gospel well. They're gifted. As long as they're staying true to God's word, nothing wrong with that. But it can be a little bit intimidating. We say, well, what, what can we do then? Well, you too have that power. You too have the Holy Spirit in them, or in you. You too 
can use simple words, brief words to share the gospel story. I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I can't make myself right with God. I need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. Fully divine and fully human. He led a sinless life and he became our sacrifice for our sin when he was crucified on the cross. And yet he rose. He conquered death. And when I believe in that, when I claim him as my Lord and Savior, when I dedicate my life to following him, I am declared righteous by God the Creator. And I will be with God in heaven for eternity. Now those are words our tongues should be proclaiming. Amen.